Hi, beautiful listeners. Welcome to the Teacher Healer podcast, where we get to geek out on all things education and heal the world at the same time. Today, I'm joined by Kylie Lewis, who is a leadership developer, climate reality leader, and founder of Of Kin, a training organization based in Melbourne. It specializes in building brave leaders and courage cultures. Kylie is a certified facilitator of Dr. Brene Brown's work on courage, vulnerability, shame, and resilience, a conversational intelligence practitioner, and a systemic team coach. Her vision is to build capacity for brave conversations in boardrooms, classrooms, and lounge rooms across Australia. Welcome, Kylie. Thank you for joining us in Teacher Healer today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm actually very excited to have the privilege of speaking to you, um, not only because you're just a fantastic, special human being, because we had a chat earlier, but also because, you know, you're a, a certified practitioner in the daring way. Sure am. And I am a Brene Brown fangirl, so it's super great, and I want to learn more. So I thought you might be able to kick this off by telling us a little bit about your work and I know you've been in schools and especially early learning centers so I'm going to hand it over. Yeah sure so I have a company called Of Kin and in my in the in the in my business I work really with leaders and developing courageous, daring, brave leaders. Um, I do that predominantly through public workshops and executive coaching and working inside organisations with their leadership teams. And I've been doing that, um, I've had my own business for eight years, but I've really in the last three years in particular, working exclusively with Brene Brown's Dare to Lead curriculum. Um, So the Daring Way curriculum that you mentioned just before, that came out of her work Um, in Daring Greatly and Rising Strong, which is fantastic work that is, sums up the research that um, Brene has done in the areas of courage, vulnerability, shame and empathy over the last, say, 15 years. And then in 2018, she published a book which was really taking the same concepts but studying them in an organisational context and that really was the area that I wanted to dig into, having, you know, have, ha- having had a career of, you know, the last 20 years um, working in organisations, I could see the real value of the stuff that she had talked about in um, Daring Greatly and Rising Strong, but really wanted it in a context of organisational development because I could just see that there was a massive need for that. So, yeah, so I've been working working with that pretty much um, exclusively for the last three years. Brilliant. And has it been a good time? It's been amazing. It's the most rewarding work I've probably ever done. And I sound, it can be a little bit selfish because every time I dig into the work and, um, deliver the curriculum and work alongside people exploring it and, letting that work sink into their bones, I learned something, you know, it it helps deepen my leadership practice as well. So, um, you know, the most common feedback that I get from people is that it's either made them feel calmer as a leader because they have a greater awareness and an insight of how they operate and what their triggers are and they have an appreciation for their emotional landscape as a leader and have some tools in their toolkit to help Um, approach that and to rumble with you know the difficult parts of leadership particularly around having hard conversations um, giving and receiving feedback setting boundaries those kinds of things Um, so people feel calmer because of that Um, and they also say that it hasn't just impacted the way that they show up at work it's how they show up in their lives as a whole person and so they're really talking about you know, the self-awareness of who am I in the world, no matter which arena that I show up in and, and how do I, how do I want to be in the world? What, what choices do I have now that I've got sort of a bit more of awareness of how I tick? Mm. It sounds like much more than a leadership program. (laughs) I sometimes sneakily say that I think, I think as human beings, there is somewhat maybe of a tendency to 
give priority to professional development that we see that there's a payoff in terms of our career or our work or our competency in that area. And perhaps we don't tend to that as much in our personal development. And so I think I think sort of some of the magic of Dare to Lead is that it's very much within an organisational context and how you show up in a leadership capacity, but it will change who you are as a human being fundamentally um, in all parts of your life. So there's a little bit of kind of justifying what I think I need, but then filling the gap of probably what you actually do need. If you know what I mean. Ah, that old chestnut. Yeah. Sell them what they want, give them what they need, isn't <laughs> that's, it? That's exactly it. <laughs> yeah. So this is the bit that I'm really interested in because, you know, teacher healer, my v- vision is that education can be a force for positive change in the world and healing. Mm. And, you know, you're working with educational leaders. So to heal themselves by the sounds of it in some ways, um, Tell me a little bit more. What what kind of process does a person go through in one of your programs? The curriculum, the way that it's sort of been set up is um, really having some self-awareness about what gets in the way of you showing up perhaps as a brave leader or with a little bit more courage in your career. So, you know, we start from the place of investigating the question of where would you like to be braver in, as a leader? You know, what is your personal call to courage as a leader? And I think we don't very often stop and ask ourselves that question. Um, So that sort of deliberate reflection sort of straight off the bat about what's sort of getting in the way of how I would like to be, you know, and for many people it's kind of like, well, actually, how would I like to be? Is there, do I have a choice? (laughs) You know, um, Mm. is, is there, is there a way through, um, some of these things that I'm bumping up against or that I'm feeling deeply uncomfortable or unsure how to tackle. So we start off, we start off there. We sort of say, you know, where would you like to be braver in your working life? Um, you know, where are the places where you're kind of holding yourself back? What would you like to change? And what are some of the things that you might identify that you might need you know what are some of the skills that you think you'd like to develop in order to be able to answer that call um so if anyone's followed Brene's work before you know they would have heard her talk about the man in the arena quote um and how it's not the critic who counts it's actually the man who's in the arena who you know is in in the arena of their lives um, striving to do their best um, to to make change, um, will you know in in the greatest kind of outcome will be successful. But for many of for many of us, we will actually you know fail at doing that, and um, we'll end up face down in the arena. But the most important thing is that while we were doing that, we were daring greatly. So I've really you know, really hacked that quote. But um, the idea the idea is that we can often sit outside of the arena of our lives for fear of what the critics will think. Um, and sometimes those critics are very real, you know, tangible people in our world. Sometimes it's the imagined stories that we've made up about what might happen. Um, and sometimes we're our own critic as well and can get in our own way of showing up more bravely. So we take that idea of, um, you know, where would you like to be braver to be able to get into the arena um, and show up in those ways. And then we start investigating, well, what, what is getting in the way and what what do we need to do that? And so we start off really exploring vulnerability and the the discomfort of vulnerability, which Brene defines as risk, uncertainty and emotional exposure. Mm. And nobody likes to feel those things. Nobody likes to feel exposed, um, you know, uncertain or, you know, to really take on much risk. We spend most of our lives trying to get comfortable, trying to get secure, trying to, you know, keep a lid on everything, um, to stay safe. But what we don't realize is that often in our hunt for sort of staying, staying safe, um, and staying out of vulnerability, 
is, you know, and often we do that because we fear things like um, we do fear uncertainty. We, 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 do, we have fears about what, what that might have for us. We might feel anxious. We might be worried about feeling shame or we might feel shame. And so we try and minimise all of those things. And when we shut down vulnerability, when we shut down risk, uncertainty and emotional exposure, we shut down actually our opportunity to experience all of the other things that also happen in the birthplace of vulnerabilities. You know, love, belonging and joy also come out of vulnerability. Um, Courage, empathy, inclusivity, um, getting and giving hard feedback, um, ethical decision-making, resilience and resetting, those are also all born in vulnerability. So we spend quite a lot of time up front really investigating what are some of the myths around vulnerability, um, how they might be showing up in our leadership practice. Um, we investigate, you know, what are, the, what are the noisy things that we hear when we're going into the arena? You know, whose voices are we hearing? Um, who's, who's, who's got power? Um, and then what do we need in order to be able to step forward into into answering that call you know who is in our empathy seats in our arena um what kind of self-compassion can we offer ourselves when we think about doing something brave so we spend a lot of time really rumbling with vulnerability because it's the foundational piece for a brave life um but we often you know we've often grown up either thinking that vulnerability is weakness um, that vulnerability is not something that we do um, mm-hmm. or we think we can go it alone um, or that vulnerability requires us to overshare everything in our lives. You know, there's, there's, there's lots of vulnerabilities, as, sorry, there's lots of myths around vulnerability that we really spend some time investigating um, and then talking about, yeah, what we need to be able to do to to rumble with the discomfort of vulnerability so we don't shut down all of the opportunities that come in being able to sit in the discomfort of it. Gosh, I'm, the more I'm listening to you, the more I'm like, gosh, it's so great leaders are doing this, but it could work at all layers. Like wouldn't you just love for all teachers to do this? Wouldn't you love for the students to be, you know, that question about what's your call to courage? For a teacher, that is an epic question. Like, because every day stepping in front of a class of unpredictable kids, <laughs> it's a call to courage, isn't it? And and so why do you keep showing up? Mm-hmm. And I, I guess I'm going to throw that out to the listeners to put on their list to think about this week. What's your call to courage? Why do you keep showing up? Mm-hmm. You know, the other thing I really loved was the idea of self-compassion. I wonder if you might unpack that one a little bit more. Yeah. Um, I just want to quickly go back. Yeah. I think the, I think teachers are absolutely amongst, amongst the bravest people and professions (laughs) because every time you step into a classroom, you're stepping, you're stepping into an arena. Mm. Um, and yeah, it is uncertain what will happen. There's no guarantees of of (laughs) how the class is going to go, you know, how, how everyone else is showing up to that. Um, so yeah, absolutely. And hats off to educators everywhere. Um, I, I, in actually delivering the dare to lead curriculum, self-compassion, I think is probably one of the most important takeaways that, participants have so one of the one of the things that we often find ourselves in when we're thinking about being brave and we're thinking about going into the arena and it's those moments where we think about having that hard conversation or pushing back on an an idea or challenging the status quo or you know Um, pitching a new way of doing things like all of those arena moments that are full of discomfort um, anywhere where there's that vulnerability you know um, it's in those moments that we have a choice to think am I going to say this am I going to challenge this am I going to call this out am I going to put this into the mix of what's happening Um, and we and it's in that moment where we can where we can think um, you know, we can hear the voice of shame. So Brene talks about shame driving two messages, never good enough. So 
you know, or never enough, the never enoughness. So, you know, well, I'm not experienced enough to contribute this, or I'm not um, senior enough to be contributing to this. Um, I'm not old enough to be experienced, you know, to be doing these things, you know, so whatever your mm-hmm. not enoughness is, and even if you can get past that is, well, who, who, who am I, who do I think I am to be contributing this anyway, you know, and it, it's in those spaces that we can find ourselves holding ourselves back. And she calls these the cheap seats, or no, she, sorry, she calls these the season ticket holders in the arena. Um, so if there are different kind of sections in the arena of where we think we're going to be brave, there's the season ticket holders of comparison, shame and scarcity that always show up when we think about doing something brave. Um, there's the cheap seats of, you know, people hurling advice and criticism and judgment, but who will never actually be in the arena and doing the things that you're doing. There's the box seats, um, you know, which are normally held by the people who built the arena, who hold power, um, you know, who can potentially be operating from stereotypes. Um, And then the two most important seats in the arena are empathy and self-compassion. And the people in the empathy seats are the people who, you know, only want the best for you, that can rumble with the discomfort of saying, yeah, that was really hard. And, um, yeah, I can see that you did make a mistake and I'm going to be here and help to help you clean it up and, mm. you know, and push you back in the arena. And sometimes we need professional empathy seat sitters in that area. You know, um, one of the exercises that we ask in the curriculum is who is in your empathy seats? You know, who is going to show up without judgment, without a hidden agenda um, and who's only going to be there for the best of you? And there's generally a very small number of people um, that do that. And sometimes you even need to have a professional, you know, empathy seat sitter, like a mentor or a coach mm. or a therapist. Um, and the other most important seat is the seat of self-compassion. And when we, when we hear the, the season ticket holders of shame, it can often be a very noisy section that's saying, you know, in that not enoughness that I'm the only one experiencing this lack of confidence or this, um, you know, this, this struggle, this hard moment that, you know, it's me alone kind of that's not adequate in this situation or experiencing these emotions. The voice of self-compassion recognises that those emotions, feeling that way, you know, being uncomfortable is part of common humanity. It's not me alone that is going through these issues or having these doubts or worried about these things or um, concerned about these things. So the voice of self-compassion, one is the same voice that you would offer to a loved one who maybe you saw going through something difficult, a difficult challenge. That same care and concern that you have and warmth that you have for that other person, you offer to yourself. Hmm. And so, you know, um, Brene draws on Kristen Neff's work um, in self-compassion and it's basically talking to yourself the way that you would talk to someone you love. So, for example, if you, if, if you could see your best friend struggling with the thing that you're struggling with at the moment, what would you wish for them? Mm. What would you wish that they would do for themselves or what advice or support or encouragement would you give to them and cultivating you giving that to yourself? Yeah. So it's that it's talking to ourselves like someone we, we love. It's recognising that the emotions, the difficulties that I'm facing and the emotions that go along with that aren't just me having a hard time of this situation, that as a human being alive on the planet today, I'm having a very human experience that is common to the constraints, to the concerns, to, you know, to the situations that I find myself in. So it's not me alone. I'm never. I'm not going to be the only one that has ever struggled with this in the past, or to struggle with it in the future. It's just what's with me at this point in time. Mm, yeah. And, and that third piece then is the mindfulness piece. It's it's the mindfulness piece of being able to recognize and identify those emotions, and um, 
And this is where emotional literacy becomes really important, being able to recognise and name our emotions um, and instead of denying them or pushing them away or diminishing them or pretend that they're not in there, they're not there, we can say to ourselves, gosh, I'm feeling in struggle right now. I, I'm feeling anxious. I'm feeling a bit overwhelmed and worried. I'm feeling um, frustrated and, um, you know, I might be feeling a bit angry with how things are going at the moment. Um And being able to sit with that rather than diminish it or push it away or pretend it's not there and just observe it, just going, well, what's this telling me? What's this telling me that's important to my values, to my contribution, to my purpose um, that I need to be paying attention to? And I can can allow myself to acknowledge these emotions, to maybe sit with them um, for a moment, to get curious about them, and then have some strategies to move through it. I don't have to set up camp in these emotions. I can experience them. I can visit them. I can be informed by the data that they're trying to communicate to me about what's what's happening and what's going important. What am I bumping up against that I need to get curious about? Um, and I can move through them. So self-compassion is really that talking to yourself like someone you love, mm. recognizing that it is part of a common humanity rather than only you're going through this situation and the mindfulness to just pay attention to your emotional life that it's important and that it has information and that whether or not we want to acknowledge it emotions actually get the first crack at anything that happens in our life (laughs) we rationalize thinking you know that we are thinking doing beings who sometimes feel but the But the fact is that we are feeling human beings. Emotions will get the first crack at it. Um, And so we need to be able to get a bit better perhaps than what we have in the past. Um, And maybe for any of your early um, childhood educators um, or primary educators, I know they spend a lot of time in, you know, social, emotional intelligence space now. Um, A lot of us older folk have a bit of catching up to do on hopefully what's happening with the younger generation and through those curriculums now. Yeah, brilliant. I can't wait to see that sort of start to flow into secondary and hopefully secondary teachers can take that on board too. I know that sometimes things don't translate between the earlier years and the upper years, but yeah, wonderful work. I'm I'm really thinking about, you know, you're talking about mistakes and that sense of not being alone. And I know that in schools, there is more and more collaboration happening, but certainly the schools that I've been in, there's still a very siloed environment in many subject areas where you might have your faculty and you might have your meetings and everything, but when you walk in front of a class, you're there on your own most of the time. And there's this real great sense of autonomy that having freedom that happens with that. But I, I feel like, you know, I've seen a lot of schools try to implement observation programs and feedback and things. And, and I know a lot of teachers are a bit frightened of that and they don't like looking like they make mistakes. <laughs> um, and I think leaders are definitely in that category. Principals are, gosh, you wouldn't want to be called out doing something wrong in some situations. Um, the sticky, sticky ones that they get. Um, so I guess that what's the way to break that down? Is it just, we need to talk about it more? Like, do we just need to say, yeah, I'm human and I messed up. I did this thing rather than keep it all secret or what's your solution? So one of the pieces that goes sort of extends further with this art, with this metaphor of being in the arena um, is this idea of how we armour up ourselves when we go into those arenas. Mm. And so in the research Brene did, she was, she was trying to understand from observing transformational leaders or brave, the brave leaders that she had identified, what was, what was the you know, what were some of the differences in how they approached hard conversations, giving feedback, um, receiving feedback, mm-hmm. handling change? And she talks about um, what she calls armoured leadership behaviours versus daring leadership behaviours. And so what she found out was through the research was that we can all feel afraid at work. We can all be fearful of being observed, of getting feedback, of things not going to plan, of making mistakes. Um, 
But that's not necessarily what keeps us from being a brave leader. So her research found that even the bravest leaders can, can, can feel fear. So it's not necessarily the case of, you know, um, you, you can only be courageous if you don't have any fear. Like that's actually a big, a big myth as well. Mm. Um, courage is actually fear walking is what Susan David out of emotional agility talks about. So, yeah. So courage isn't the absence of fear. Courage is the ability to say, I can feel um, afraid of actually what's going on right now, but you have a choice. You have a choice if to say, so I'm going to armor up and I'm going to, I'm going to be the knower and I'm going to always put myself as someone who has the right answer. Um, I'm going to potentially avoid hard conversations wherever I can. Um, I'm going to hold a position where I'm, I strive for so much perfection that it's not my issue and it's not my problem. Um, because you know, I strive so much to have everything right all the time that it's probably going to be somebody else that stuffs something up, you know? Um, so she talks about this idea of, of we can armor up and in armoring up, it really drives disconnection. Right. It really pushes it, it pushes people away when, um, you know, I'm carrying around this armor and the big one that we talk about, you know, and there's 38 different behaviors that she has in the latest version of the curriculum that was released last year. The biggest one is for many of us, and I think this is particularly true of teachers who are in the position of having to be the knower and having to be right, you know, because we're imparting knowledge and, you know, we're, we're, we're holding space for learning and we are, you know, we have some expertise. Um, it's this idea that if I always have to be the knower and be right, then I'm less likely to take the space of I'm here to be a learner and to get it right. And so if we want to be daring leaders, holding that space of, I'm an, I'm an ongoing learner. I'm a curious person. I may not always get it right, so I'm here to learn how to get it right over time. I will ask lots of questions. I will be open to feedback. I will recognise that, you know, different experiences that other people have, different education, different cultural backgrounds will have a whole range of things to offer that I couldn't possibly know about. So we spend a lot of time talking about being armoured up and what we need to do to be able to to put our armour down in the arena so that we can have vulnerable kinds of conversations. So if, you know, the situation that you described about, say, being observed in the classroom, Mm. um, you know, there could, that, that, can be, that can be something that I imagine teachers could feel quite anxious about. You know, they know that they're being evaluated. They know that they might, you know, be going to get some hard feedback at the end of that, you know, and there can be this whole idea of, okay, I'm going to put, I'm going to put a, 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 you know, some armour up. I, I'm, I want this to go perfectly. I want to, you know, I'm performing, perfecting, pleasing, you know, try, <laughs> trying to do all of that. Yeah. Um, and when it doesn't go to plan, cause no plan survives its impact with reality, <laughs> um, you know, where do we go with that? You know, what's our, what, what is our reaction when things don't go well? How do we, how do we handle then the discomfort of, of failure or disappointment or setback? Mm. Um, and for many of us, you know, we maybe not have, haven't seen it role modeled very well. We haven't necessarily seen other people bounce, be able to bounce back with, um, with grace and with, um, compassion and empathy when things haven't gone well. So, you know, in that scenario that you talked about with the teacher, a conversation with with perhaps the person that's coming in to observe and the and the teacher beforehand that is an assurance that we're actually both on the same side here mm. this is actually a learning opportunity for both of us and that i'm here to help identify 
you know, what, what's going really well and where your strengths are and then perhaps what are some of the other areas that I can help fill some gaps in or, mm. you know, help answer any questions you might have around, you know, the things that you're struggling with or you'd like to develop a stronger skill set in. Yeah. It's the intention that you set up beforehand. Like what's the, what's the purpose of this activity that we're doing together? Um, because if I have a sense that you're in this with me and you're here to support my growth and development and help me um, deal with the discomfort of, you know, being the learner in this situation, um, then I must, I'm much more likely to stay open to taking on feedback and growing mm. rather than keeping the armour up and keeping defensive and shutting down opportunities to learn and grow. That's so key, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I'm just thinking back on some of my experiences and some have been better than others. You know, at one school it was just a nightmare doing that observation. It was like a tick-the-box exercise that was full of anxiety and then another time, it was a real collaborative process. It was enjoyable. There was lots of planning involved. There was lots of chit-chat about, hey, I'm going to experiment with this thing. Let's see how it goes. Um, and there was a bit more risk-taking. And it was, yeah, it was about how it was set up by the so, leaders. Yeah. And so what you're talking about there is psychological safety. Mm. So um, and psychological safety, I've seen defined by um, Timothy Clark, is rewarded vulnerability. Right. So, you know, how safe is it for me to be vulnerable here? Mm. Um, how, safe of, how safe is it for me to say, I need help, I have a question, I don't know the answer, I made a mistake? You know, mm. and the, I don't know, perhaps the kind of meta kind of view on this or maybe the ironic part of it is as teachers, this is hopefully what you're hoping to do with your kids, with Gosh, children. Yes. Yeah. Because kids can't learn unless it's a psychologically safe environment. Mm. Yeah. And often what I found in working across professions, not just with, with teachers or educators, but we, we sometimes can get fixed in us, in our professional roles, as this is what we do with our clients or our customers or who we serve, that we forget that some of those principles, in fact, probably most of them also are relevant in how we show up as a leader or a colleague or a team member with other people as well. Yeah, Gosh, I'm really taken by that idea of, like, what did you say, encourage vulnerability or what was the term? Um, so Timothy Clark calls it rewarded vulnerability. Rewarded, yes. Yeah. So, you know, I actually get rewarded for asking questions. I get rewarded for um, contributing. Um, I in, love that. You know, I get rewarded for challenging ideas. Like they're not things that are pushed away or seen as, negative or you know think something to get resentful about it's actually great I'm I'm so glad that you did that it shows you're engaged it shows that you care it shows that you are thinking and curious and that's 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 what we want and it goes back to Brene's definition of leadership which is about a leader is anyone who has the courage to develop the potential in people and processes. Okay. So a leader is anyone who has the courage to develop the potential in people and processes. So a leader isn't somebody who just has the title of leader or the position or the power of leader or, you know, the, you know, the, the formal given authority power of leader. I've seen, I've seen, you know, school in, in air quotes, leadership teams that I wouldn't necessarily call leadership teams. Administration teams, mm -hmm. yes. Yeah. Management teams, yes. Leadership, not so much. Right. You know, and then you could probably walk around a, a school ground and you could see, you know, people who don't have formal leadership authority absolutely leading in you know, in their development of building other leaders. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense, yeah. 
I'm just, I'm like, I, I I'm going back, going to go back to that psychological safety thing you discussed, because that to me is a game changer, what you said, because I've thought about psychological safety in the classroom as you do, because you want kids to feel safe, but I've never thought of it in that way before. So for me, it's meant like, you know, how do you stop kids from picking on each other? Or how do you, you know, how do you create a safe space for discussion where people aren't going to say nasty things or rude jokes or whatever, but but to think of it as this rewarded vulnerability to be able to fail and make mistakes and to be a learner and to admit you don't know, I mean, that's key, isn't it? How brave is it? Oh, I'll never forget there's this story I have of this um, young man who was a very talented musician. I know he would have been in a choir outside of school and everything and he he came to my class and we were doing some recording on an iPad and he just would not engage. And most of the kids were loving this. They were like, yeah, I'm going to make my own song. It's going to be super great. And he's like, nah, not having a bar of it. I'm like, what's the deal, man? Like, why, why aren't you giving this a try? He's like, miss, I have this idea of my head of what I want it to look like and I'm not going to be able to do it. It won't come out perfect. So I'm not going to try. And I've never forgotten that. And I, I wasn't able to get him over the line in that instance, but he wasn't willing to fail. And, and it wasn't about what anyone else thought either. It was about what he thought of his own work. And I don't think he's willing to admit to himself that he has work to grow. And I suppose I, I said to him, you know, I know with art, mate, like you have to do an artwork a hundred times badly before you do something good, you know, and he took that on. Um, and I hope that that stays with him, but it's yeah you have to be willing to fail don't you you have to be willing to fail and you have to be ready to accept that perfectionism is a trap yeah like perfectionism just works against everything that's good in our lives um Mm, that just I just wonder if you have a piece of advice here because I've met so many teachers especially graduate teachers who will spend hour upon hour upon hour planning 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 every lesson to the minute right and I know that there's you know we've got some political action happening at the moment with teachers who are overworked and we need to try and save them some time so what is your advice to those teachers who need to plan everything to a T yeah there's a big difference between perfectionism which is defined, perfectionism is a function of shame. Mm. Perfectionism is a feeling of not enoughness. And what I'm trying to do is I'm, pu- I'm trying to put on so much armour that I can minimise judgement, shame and criticism. And, that's, and it's, it's all based about what will other people think. Healthy striving comes from a place of saying, what do I want to get out of this? What does success look like for me in this? Mm -hmm. What's, you know, what's, what's in this that is the learning opportunity for me that I'll take on board? And so when we're, when perfectionism is driving, we're really hustling very hard for our worth. Right. And when we think about healthy striving, it's, it's an acknowledgement to say it, it's really the acknowledgement is that I can be a learner and I can keep growing. I can start here and I can give it my best shot where I'm at now and recognise that I might not have all of the answers, I might not have it all figured out, but I'm going to get in the arena and give it a go and I'm going to be compassionate towards myself as a learner in this space, the same way that I would be compassionate and cheer on, you know, my best friend who might be going through the same situation. Yeah. Um, and once I do this thing, I will have some learnings out of that and that's how I get better. Mm. So I couldn't possibly, especially as a graduate, I can't possibly be expected to know everything, you know, to have this skill of what I hope to have as a, you know, as an educator 10 years down the road from now. So this is where I'm starting with what I know. Yeah. So who can I lean into to have a discussion? Who can Mm. I ask some questions about? Um, 
what conversations might be helpful? What's my list of questions that I could tap into um, a mentor or somebody else about? Like very often we think we have to do this all on our own. And that's another myth of vulnerability that, you know, I, that I can go it alone, you know, that somehow I don't need other people. Um, and that just pushes up against our biology of how we're actually hardwired. We are actually hardwired to be in, in connection with other people. We are a social species. We've only ever survived by being in connection with other people. Mm. And so sometimes, particularly when we're, you know, when we're trying to prove and perform and perfect, um, we can take a lot of that on ourselves rather than saying, this is what I sort of feel I'm okay at. This is where I'm struggling with. Who can I reach out to to have this conversation? Is it a talk? With, is it a phone conversation with, you know, one of the other graduates and just asking, have they got any insight? Is it with a coordinator or a mentor that I've been, been assigned in the school? And being okay with feeling, with feeling emotionally exposed in that. Oof. Yeah. And we're not normally practiced, right? That's no. why. That's why it's. That's why it's brave. Mm. That's why it's brave to do that. Is to yeah. admit, I don't feel I've got a handle on this. Can I walk this through with you, um, and just get some feedback? Yeah. Well, good advice. I wish I'd done that more in my first year and I would definitely second what you just said, yeah. I think a lot of burnout in that perspective can come, it's the psychological burnout of feeling like I I should have this all together. Yeah. Do you, do you, think, do you think that that happens? Like, yeah, do you abs- think- it does. It absolutely does. And I've, I've seen it in my friends as well um, and just seen them run themselves ragged and I wasn't one of those guys, but I didn't reach out for help either. I just kind of drowned in my first couple of years, you know. Yeah. And you know what was really surprising, Brene talks about um, in the research. So when when we look at the curriculum, rumbling with vulnerability is a big piece of the work. Mm. The other skill set, there's four skill sets of daring leadership, rumbling with vulnerability, living into values, so getting clarity of values, mm-hmm. braving trust, so really understanding what trust looks like, and then learning to rise, which is how you get back up after a failure or a disappointment yeah. or a setback. But in the trust piece, when she was looking at trust and, and the research into that, what the one of the most surprising things was one a really big trust earning behavior um, that she discovered was asking for help, which seems oh. really counterintuitive, right? Yeah. But leaders will say when somebody asks for help, I find that I trust them more because I know that they're engaged and they're thinking about what's going on and they're willing to ask a question to make sure that they have got it right mm. rather than kind of winging it or covering it up. Right, yeah. That's, it's kind of, you know, it's kind of counterintuitive when you think about it, but asking for help is actually a big um, trust-building behaviour. You think about, like, think about it with kids in the classroom. Yeah. It's a permission slip, isn't it, then, to, to just go, it's okay to admit you don't know. It's good to ask for help. You'll actually be smiled upon for doing it. I think that helps be a little bit more brave, doesn't it, yeah, knowing I that? Mean, I could sit here for, like what you were saying, you know, I could sit here all of my Saturday trying to figure out this lesson plan or trying to plan it, you know, to the nth degree, or maybe I could sit down, you know, for half an hour with a friend and talk it through and get some feedback and kind of get some assurance that this is okay or, mm. you know, like so often we think we have to work it all out on our, on our own and I think that's that's where you can also see the silos happening in schools or on teams or, you know, in cultures where we're also armoured up thinking that we have to be all be the knower and all have to be right rather than mm. as a collective that's our responsibility to work together to constantly be learning and, and checking in with each other and getting it right together. Yeah, and I feel like I've seen, I've worked in primary and secondary and I feel like I see that collaborative behaviour happen much more often in primary schools and it's it's gold what happens, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Now I want to I dig a bit deeper with you, Kylie. I have a question here that 
I guess what I want to know is, you know, what's your biggest lesson that you've brought out of doing this work? From having worked now with um, probably a, a few thousand people doing this curriculum, mm. I and and you know and you teach what you need to learn, right? That's what is often said <laughs> about about educators. Yeah. Um, I I think the two big pieces from this work that I've realised by getting this work in my own bones, so mm. I can show up with other people and and talk about it. Um, is the self-compassion piece absolutely 100% game-changing, revolutionises how you show up in the world um, and your capacity to keep showing up over time, you know, the sustainability of your leadership. But the other big piece is boundaries Mm. and really being able to get clear about boundaries of what's okay and what's not okay. Yeah. And, And being able to rumble with the discomfort of setting boundaries that might ruffle feathers with other people that people might get annoyed about or push back on. But in the absence of setting your own boundaries, other people just will fill up your cup, your priorities, your space, your commitments unless you are clear about your boundaries, about what's okay and what's not okay and what you are prepared to do and what you're not prepared to do and what's driving those behaviours, I think we can find ourselves in a place of of burnout, you know, and a big kind of a big um, way to look at, at boundaries and understand what boundaries are Anywhere in your life where you experience resentment, right? So resentment is a really good indicator that there's a boundary issue that needs to be addressed. Yeah. So if I'm feeling resentful because I've been asked to do this thing, I need to investigate what's that bumping up against? You know, is it that it's just been expected of me without anyone checking with me if if I have capacity to do this? Mm. Um, you know, have I said yes to doing this when actually I really wanted to say no? Mm. Um, you know, is there an injustice or an inequity here that actually needs to be addressed, that needs to be talked about? rather than, you know, potentially just me sucking it up or just, you know, looking the other way. So wherever there is resentment, there's normally a boundary issue that needs to be discussed, explored, observed, um, and and a boundary set and held. And when the context changes, boundaries change. And so I saw you know, with the arrival of COVID and just the complete turning inside out of everything yeah, for a sustained period of time. Yeah, like the mess, like the mess that came with that. Um, You know, it was a recontracting of boundaries. Mm. So in this situation, what's okay and what's not okay? And it's really hard when there's so much of so much of what might be happening is out of our control um and so we really need to focus what's what is in my control what what can i control in this situation and what am what do i need to put push back on mm. um what how do we renegotiate these boundaries together given the context of what's happening both in my personal life you know of what's happening with me and in the, in in the professional context yeah. yeah and that's not easy work i think um yeah when i talk when i talk with leaders and when they ask me you know what they you know some of the biggest things that they get out of this work is is self compassion and boundaries um and being able to rumble with the discomfort of boundaries and because often in those boundaries conversations are hard feedback conversations. Mm. 
and that's the that's the kind of other area. Like I was working with um, a bunch of primary school principals from New South Wales earlier this week. You know, and some of their calls to courage were things like these are principals saying, I want to be braver to have more difficult conversations. Um, I want to be braver implementing change, especially when I meet resistance in staff, Um, letting go of the things I've implemented, you know, letting go of perfectionism. Mm. Um, I want to be braver at sticking to my point when it's not a popular one. Ooh, tough one. Yeah. I'd like (laughs) to develop more skills in giving constructive feedback. So, you know, so, so some of those um, some of those skills come because having those conversations require some boundaries to be upheld mm. or honoured. Yeah. So, what is you know we're talking about education. We've talked a lot about Brene's work, but what is for you personally? What is your wish for education? Gosh, that's a, such a big question. I think I think my biggest wish for education as a whole is actually honouring what it is to be a human being in the world and to really honour the role of vulnerability for us as learners and our capacity to learn our capacity to show up and engage with each other and work together collaboratively Mm. to solve and address some of the biggest issues that we've ever had to face as a a species. Mm. So one of the things, um, just a, a short story to maybe finish up on, but In 2019, I was part of a program called Homeward Bound, which is a global leadership program. You were not. Brilliant. I I know of this program. Yeah. (laughs) So I was invited to join the visibility stream faculty and visibility is all about um, empowering, well, in the Homeward Bound context, empowering women in STEM from women, leaders in women in STEM backgrounds from around the world to have the will and the skill um, to bring their, to, to, you know, increase the impact of their work on the world and to raise their leadership capacity. Um, and in that experience, it's a 12-month online program that culminates in a three-week voyage around Antarctica. Mm, brilliant. Yeah, 80, 80 women in STEM from 26 different countries around the world, all on this one ship um, floating around. You know, <laughs> Sounds the, like a recipe for a tea party. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's lots, of, there's lots of things that come to mind when, you know, I say that to people. Um, and we spent a lot of time doing a lot of container building to build psychological safety before we went on the ship. Yeah. So we actually did quite a bit of um, digging into some of the work that we do with Brene. But one of the women on the ship um, who was part of the faculty as part of, I guess, their elder program, they called it, um, at the time, kind of, you know, the, the, the older, wiser, more senior experience kind of women was Christiana Figueres. And she was the UN Executive Secretary um, who led the negotiation of the Paris Climate Agreement. Legend. Like I still pinch myself too. This incredible um, woman um, from South America who wound up leading perhaps the most important negotiation of our times. Yeah, yeah. It you know, and it involved 195 nation states having to unanimously agree on these climate targets and pathway forwards and I didn't realize but when you go to you know anything that's kind of done in the UN you have to get unanimous agreement for it to be enshrined Um, and what was so interesting to me is learning about Christiana was that she wasn't a politician she wasn't an economist she wasn't she wasn't a scientist yeah she was actually a trained anthropologist okay 
And what that meant How was what that meant was that she understood culture. She understood that to make change, we need to meet people where they're at and seek to understand their stories and what's going on for them. Brilliant, yeah. And so during her tenure in that role, and I don't know if many people realise this, but Paris Climate Agreement, climate agreement which, um, you know, which, which happened in 2015, 2016, they had tried to do it at Copenhagen in 2009 and failed. Yeah. And so Christiana came in kind of after that. And one of the things I realised was her being an anthropologist meant that instead of kind of sitting in, you know, UN headquarters and trying to negotiate everything from from there is that she went and visited every single one of those countries. She went to seek to understand them. 195 countries. Yeah, and to seek to understand what's going on for them. Gosh. And to show up and to show interest and to be curious and to honour the reality of what was going on for those people and to listen genuinely with curiosity about their concerns and their limitations and what would need to happen in order for this agreement to take place. Right. That takes, that takes an, ex, an, an extraordinary amount of self-awareness to be able to go to a country, say, for example, like Saudi Arabia, where as a female negotiator, she had to potentially put aside perhaps some of her own kind of, you know, beliefs about, you know, the role of women in the world to meet these people where they're at for this higher purpose of, you know, this needing to come to an agreement about how we're going to go forward and solve this massive problem which affects all of us. Um, you need to have a pretty good sense of self. You need to have a pretty good sense of your own emotional reactivity mm. and develop some skills in navigating your own emotional landscape in order to be able to kind of create the collaborations that we so desperately need going forward. We need to be able to drop our own egos and show up in service of the work and each other with a clarity of our own values um, you know, with a with a with a sense of of purpose and impact, um, and as and you know, and one of the other things was I learnt from her boundaries. So even in her role, she she never took um, meetings after seven o'clock at night. You know, she had this massive, huge global role, but she was like, no, I don't do I don't do evening meetings. I don't do dinner meetings. You know, I I finish my day at this time. And that enables me the space and the um, resetting and the, you know, rejuvenation that I need to be able to come back to work tomorrow and go again. Brilliant. So she held space and she modelled that for the team that she worked with as well. Mm. So it became expected that um, this is when Christiana is available, this is not when she's available, this is what she can do, this is what she can't do. Um, So I guess my wish for education is to is to really have a greater appreciation for what it is to be a human, um, to recognise the diversity um, that exists within us and to find a pathway to each other rather than seeing it as division. And I think for, I think a lot of that does come from our own self-awareness of what it is to be a human today, the, the compassion that we can offer ourselves. I think when we show up to ourselves with more compassion where we're more able to do that for others as well. Yeah. And that when we practice setting boundaries for ourselves, we can role model what that looks like for other people as well. Wow. I'm um, getting the sense that this is going to be one of those episodes that our teachers listen to over and over and over mm-hmm. again. I can't even draw the threads together for that because <laughs> there were so many learnings um, and ideas that are applicable to our own lives. So, yeah, thank you. I feel very inspired. <laughs> That's my pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity to do that. And I um, I love working with educators because I know 
that not only is there the opportunity to help in the sustainability of their own practice of being educators, but educators influence generations. Mm. And it can just take one educator in your life to change the trajectory of someone's life, hopefully for good. Mm. Um, And, you know, when I think about what has led me to doing the work that I do today and where some of my strengths come from and the things that I get most joy out of, I can track it back to some really wonderful educators that I've had in my life. Um, and in fact, in fact, one thing that's really interesting, the best leader I've ever had in the corporate world was a primary school teacher who then went out into business. Oh. Yeah. Skills are, probably don't want to say this, but skills are very transferable. Great teachers have very transferable skills across a broad range of industries. Um, so when I think about when I think about the role of education and educators doing some of the most important work that is to be done in the world um, and doing it in a way that really honours uh, the whole humanity of a student and the mm. whole humanity of a teacher, that's where I think that there's, that's what gets me excited about working with teachers. Oh, brilliant. Mm-hmm. Brilliant. I'm excited too. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's absolutely my pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks for listening to the Teacher Healer podcast. Find more episodes and information at www.teacherhealer.com. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, please rate us or refer us to your friends and colleagues. And if you care about saving the world from plastic, click on the Zero Co link in the show notes to learn what you can do to help. 